Hello and welcome back to Track Chat with Beth and Andrew. We're just about managing to keep track chatting around full-time jobs, holidays and general life, but we're really enjoying the opportunity to get our F1 rants and ideas out there. This week, we're taking a quick look back to the Monaco Grand Prix and giving our thoughts on that race before we get into the topic we've chosen for this week, which is the potential for new teams in F1, including the much-anticipated entry of Audi and speculation around Andretti, Porsche and other teams. After that, as always, we'll give our thoughts on the upcoming Spanish Grand Prix. Let's kick off with our thoughts about Monaco. Last time we filmed the podcast, we said we had mixed feelings about this track, but I think there's actually ended up being a lot of talking points from the race this year. Yeah, do you know what? I actually, I'm almost going to say that I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. I enjoyed a Monaco Grand Prix. It was by far not the worst one I've ever seen. It could have been the best, and it was just maybe a little bit off that. Yeah, I, I'm going to say it's not my favourite Monaco Grand Prix. It's not Daniel Ricciardo winning with a broken car, but it was it was up there. And I, I feel that it was maybe one of the best opportunities that Aston Martin had for maybe this entire season. And yeah, maybe they you know didn't make the best decision on the day, but just the fact that they were even in the fight to begin with just put a smile on my face and genuinely made me enjoy Monaco in a way that I have not done for a long time. Yeah, I think, obviously, I wasn't watching. I think I started watching just after the year where Ricardo had that win that you mentioned. So I think this is definitely one of the best, if not the best, Monaco that I've watched, in my opinion. But, um, yeah, it was super cool to see Alonso in qualifying. I think a lot of people had moments in quali where they really, really believed and thought that he would get pole. And even he said it himself, he really thought he could he could get onto pole and the finest margins between Alonso and Verstappen, which is cool to see. I really enjoyed that. Just a bit of a shame in the race, uh, how it played out, but I'm not really sure if things would have ended up any differently, even if they had made that tyre call. So you say that, though, but I was watching it all while it was going on. Alonso ended the race 28 seconds, or just a little bit under, behind Max. And a stop at Monaco is 25 seconds. So he would have come out, if he'd only done one stop, right on the heels of Max, on a warm set of inters that were already in the groove. Where, and I think genuinely he could have had a go at Max. Or even if... I think it would have put Max under more pressure because he would have had to have picked to cover Alonso. And if Alonso was on an absolute barnstormer of a lap, you know, at that point I feel like because Alonso pitted twice, it just gave Max the like absolute time to just do whatever he felt was best. He didn't have any pressure at that point for a car behind because the nearest car was already 25 seconds behind at that point. Because mm. if Alonso was going to have to change again, he was going to lose that 25 seconds that he did. So, yeah, I, I think yeah. he could have made a really good go at it. I guess it's one of those that we'll never know, but I do think even if that was the case, being behind Verstappen on a wet Monaco track with no DRS, I just can't see him getting past, but I would have loved to have seen that and seen how it, how it played out. So I was a bit disappointed with the Aston strategy, but I saw a lot of commentary afterwards of people saying that, well, actually, they did what teams in Aston's position should do. They took a bit of a chance on a strategy thinking, well, if it stays dry, we'll be in a really good window. And it just didn't work out. And I think when you are a team like Aston that's banking on a failure or, or a mistake or something like that from Red Bull, that's the way you have to think and the way the strategists have to be. They do have to kind of roll the dice a little bit and give, give things a go. I don't think you're wrong. I just have a slightly different view on it. I think you're totally right. that I, I fully understand why the engineers did what they did. They followed the data absolutely. At the point where they pitted, there was only two corners that had any rain, and from the radar, they didn't know if it was going to last or how wet it was going to get. For me, it was one of those beautiful moments in Formula 1, which happens every now and again, especially when the rain comes. It was one of those races for me where all they had to do was poke their head out of the window and have a look at what was going on and they would have seen 
there's a massive black cloud above that part of the track. It might not spread to the rest of it, but there's no way that rain is going to stop in the next couple of minutes, and the chances are it's going to go on till the end. And so Inters are the best option. I think it was just one of those where you're right, you're absolutely right, they did everything they should have, they followed all the data, they did everything that the computer told them to, and everything that the engineer brain of them said was right. But all they needed to do was just stick their head out the window a little bit, have a look at what was actually happening in front of their eyes, and use that to make a, a more informed decision. Some people were saying that the... Because like, I saw some tweets from people who were at the track saying that the weather was very different depending what part of the track you were on which would have added to confusion because you i guess you could have had drivers on the radio feeding back well it's not that wet here don't need them yet that's exactly what happened with ferrari isn't it yeah exactly they decided oh actually we're not going to need them and then a lap later it just chucked it down even more and and yeah they were they were screwed bit of a weekend to forget again for ferrari unfortunate in a way with the penalty for Leclerc, he would have started higher up and had a better shot, but he did deserve that penalty though. That was yeah. You know, if you're on a slow lap, there's absolutely no need for you to be on the left hand side in the tunnel. It's unsighted, probably the fastest you get to in an F1 car. Maybe you go a little bit faster down the main straight. I don't know, but that's pretty much where the speeds get to. He should not have been there, and he absolutely impeded Norris. And I mean, 100%. fantastic work for McLaren to even get Norris back out there after he tapped it into the wall and broke the suspension arm. But Leclerc did not need to be there. And I think that was a fully, for once, fully justified penalty. Yeah, I think it was justified. But it just continues the Monaco curse for Leclerc that everyone talks about, where he just has seems to have terrible luck there. But whose fault is it? Is it the team's or his? In that case, should they have fed back to him on the telemetry that another car was approaching. Yeah, I, I feel like they just got caught out and thought, oh, the session must nearly be over. You know, no one's going to be on a run now. We can just chill out and not have to worry about who's behind us. And it actually turned out that Norris was probably, I think he was the only one still on a run by that point. So probably a little bit of, of, of both fault. First for Leclerc even being there and second for the team not warning them sooner that someone was, was coming up behind them. Mm. But where it wasn't a great weekend for Ferrari... I think someone who really stood out was Ocon. I think there was a lot of fuss around Alonso, and rightly so, for how well he was doing. And then there was also a lot of discussion around how unfortunate the weekend had gone for Ferrari. But I think Ocon did such a good job and definitely deserved driver of the day. Ocon seems to be making a little bit of a reputation for himself. as I, I don't think every day he has that raw pace or that championship winning mentality that maybe a... Hamilton or Verstappen has or not that I've seen so far maybe it's in there somewhere but he seems to on the days when it matters when he can do something that can actually get that reward he seems to be there almost like Perez used to be when he was in um, the Force India he used to get those podiums that you thought were just unachievable for that car I would never have put that Alpine in a podium position and he dragged that thing there in a way that no one else could yeah, I think you're right about it being interesting that he can pull out these results. I'm not really sure where I stand because I think it'd be really interesting to see Ocon in a stronger car. I know you could say that about almost all the drivers on the grid. But yeah, he does pull out these results every so often that you just think, wow, how has he done that? Like how has an Alpine ended up P3 at Monaco? And to be fair, I generally at the start of the season thought that once Pierre got himself settled, he'd sort of have the handle of Ocon, and it really doesn't seem like that so far. I know it's only you know five, six races into the season, but he seems to have a, a handle on, on uh, Gasly, not the other way around. Yeah, there was a lot of people who said that, actually. I was similar. I think I thought, yeah, Gasly will come in and they'll be at least very, very similar matched straight away or Gasly will be ahead quite quickly. So, yeah, underestimated Ocon, to be fair. But I think there was um, two drivers who just had the worst weekend out of anyone that they possibly could have had. The first was Perez, been in, a, in the wall in Q1, and it, it it was just such a weird crash. It was I watched it back a couple of times, and he just carried so, so much speed into that first corner at Sandovart that 
it was just obvious watching it. He was never, ever going to make that corner. It looked like he was carrying maybe like 15 mile an hour more than he, he would ever do through that corner. And one of the commentators said that maybe he got distracted by one of the other cars coming out of the pit lane. But surely that's something you're aware of by now at Monaco. Like you, you shouldn't be getting caught out by things like that. It just seems to have absolutely just blasted it into the wall and I mean you could see how much damage there was other people were tapping the wall and getting away with you know Lando a little bit of front suspension damage that could be fixed in I think they did it in 14 minutes fantastic Perez destroyed like the side pods of that car weird one for Perez that isn't it because he does have this reputation where people say oh king of the streets and he's really solid on street tracks obviously his performances in Monaco in years past have been strong and yeah, I wouldn't have expected. I wouldn't have had that on my bingo card at the start of the weekend either. Perez binning it in Q one, so wonder what went on there. It. I've not actually heard an interview with him afterwards about it and what happened, so I'm genuinely not sure. Well, I don't know what was worse: the fact that he qualified so far back, or that he just didn't make any moves up during the race. Yes, Monaco is incredibly difficult to overtake at, but if you have the best car on the grid by a country mile. Every time I looked, it was like Perez 18th, Perez 17th, Perez 18th. Like, you just never seem to move anywhere. And like you say, it, it is weird because it's not like he's in a car that isn't capable of making its way through the field because we've seen Verstappen do it. I just, I, I don't know if his head just wasn't in the game or he just maybe thought, you know what, Monaco's my track. I've won here. This is where I don't really need the focus. I don't know. Maybe he just lost the concentration for a moment, but... You're kind of getting paid a lot of money to not lose concentration at that point. But... Andrew's very savage take on Perez there, but I think... Well, I just think it, at that level, you know, you're being paid by a Red Bull to drive the best car on the grid, and you, I, I would understand if he was absolutely pushing the limit and he hit the wall. People do that at Monaco, it happens, it's not a big deal. It knocks your confidence a little bit, but you get back up and you get back in it. That crash was just, you could just look at it and go, he was never going to make that corner. The, the amount of speed he was carrying, it was never going to happen. And another driver that stood out, I mean, you've got Perez that obviously stands out like a sore thumb when you've got Verstappen right at the top of the order. And then you've also got Alonso's teammate having a really rough weekend as well. Stroll just had a one to completely forget. And I think they stand out more for it because their teammates are arguably the best, well, I don't know if you, you could go as far as to say the best drivers in F1, but the, the best drivers this year with Certainly the in the best three or four. Yeah. I know, I, I don't really get this. I mean, I'm sort of getting sick now of every week. We'll do our prediction for the next race. And I say, you know what? It's really time for Stroll to have a clean race and prove that he's got the pace. And then he just ends up right at the back or in the middle of nowhere again. Like, he took the front wing off in the middle of the race and then ended up retiring. But he just had an awful race and an awful weekend before that. And... You can't even say that the car wasn't up to it because the other car was in P2 and racing around for a podium. It, it just, I don't know, that, that team, if Stroll doesn't start to put some serious performances in, he, they really need to start thinking about how serious are they about winning a world championship because at the moment, despite all of the podiums, that Aston Martin has five podiums at the moment, all of those are Fernando, Mercedes only has one podium so far this season, but Mercedes is only one point behind Aston Martin, and it's because both Lewis and George are consistently next to each other. Every single race, they will be two cars next to each other, or separated by a car or two. Stroll is too often too far back. I mean, Stroll is eighth, and he's only on 27 points in the championship. Fernando's got 93. I think... Exactly what you just said about Mercedes shows the power of having consistency and consistent drivers. Because you wouldn't think, you wouldn't even think of Mercedes when you're thinking about the performance of the Aston at the moment, at least, because the Aston seemed so much better. So to have, yeah, Mercedes closing in on them is just a bit soul destroying for Aston, really. Um, and then you've got Alonso, who's on 93 points in the championship, and Stroll, who's on 27. So Alonso's closing in on 100 and Stroll's still down at 27. It's just but that's too big a gap. But then if you look under Fernando, who sits under Fernando? Oh, it's Lewis Hamilton on 69 points. And who's under Lewis? It's George Russell on 50 points. So there's a 19-point gap between them, not a 60-point gap like there is 
between Fernando and Stroll. It just, Stroll really needs to start getting those points banked because otherwise people are going to look at that team and go, fantastic, you can give them a new factory, you can give them the best car in the world. But if your second driver's not up to it, you're never going to win a world championship. It's never going to happen. Especially that, you know, constructors is what it's all about for the teams. They're never going to win that if they're that far behind and that, that the second driver just isn't, you know, keeping up. Mm. It's going to make the teams think, like you say, about the seasons to come. But really, in the next few races, it's going to be crucial for Stroll and Perez to pick up some serious points. I think you were saying to me that it's, has Perez binned it now with the attempt at the championship potentially because he's down so many points just from that one race so he needs to absolutely monopolize now and get as many points as he possibly can and be there to pick up the pieces if there ever is an issue with the staffing I I think it's not over for Perez yet it will require some reliability or penalties coming to to Max which don't know, just don't really see it happening. We've seen Max can start, you know, 15th on the grid and still win the race. I think it's going to be difficult. Perez has made it, you know, much more difficult for himself. He was in a position where he wasn't too far behind. Now, Max is on 144 points and Sergio's on 105. It's a pretty yeah. big difference. That's two race wins where Max doesn't score points. Yeah, it's a huge, huge gap to close for him. But it's interesting that we both weren't really expecting to enjoy Monaco that much when we did the preview last time. And it turned out to be a pretty decent weekend overall. I'm starting to get the feeling, that, and I think I said this in the last episode, that as I get older, I'm strangely starting to enjoy Monaco more or I appreciate it more for what it is and isn't. It isn't supposed to be, I think, the most thrilling fight you know, between drivers. It's, it's much more of a strategy race. It's much more about the actual challenge of just surviving the circuit i think monaco is is just a race of attrition like can you get to the end and if you do you're likely to be in for a good result i think it's much more about that than it is actually racing and and once i got my head around that and sort of came to terms and peace with that i actually i'm starting to sort of enjoy it a bit so we'll have to see next year if it ends up being a really boring one i might go back on that um but yeah for now I, i i don't have as much hate towards Monaco as maybe I used to. Still not sure I'm going to pick it to be my favourite race or the one that I pick every time in the F1 game, but I can appreciate that it's there. I'm on the same page with you there. I appreciate Monaco. I liked this race. If every Monaco race was like this one, then yeah, I'd enjoy it. I just think, again, it goes back to the thing that the cars being so wide takes away some of the entertainment. But overall, enjoyed it. think it brings something different to the calendar. Yeah, but anyway... Now, on to our main topic of the week, which is something that I think we've both wanted to talk about on the podcast for a while, and that's the introduction or potential introduction of new teams to Formula One. So let's start by discussing a team that we already know is going to be joining the grid very soon, and that's Audi. There was lots of rumour about them for a while, and then it was finally revealed, and we know that they'll be taking over Alfa Romeo from 2026 and producing their own engines. Yeah, I'm really happy about this. I think it's going to be really good for F1. And I think Audi has um, done what its sister brand Porsche couldn't and come into F1 in a very sensible and logical and thought out way, which is exactly what I would expect from Audi. Um, They will effectively, well, they already have purchased a minority stake in the Sauber team, which is currently sponsored by Alfa Romeo, like you say. And then from then on, uh, I think it's from 2026, um, Audi will take a majority ownership in that Sauber team, which will no longer be branded as Aston Martin. That's the end, I believe, of this season. And I just think it's a really clever way. It's an existing factory. It's the Alfa, well, the Alfa Romeo factory is uh, Switzerland. So it's not massively far from Audi's knowledge base in Germany anyway. Um, it's an existing team with existing infrastructure with people that know what they're doing and all they really need is a bit of money and a bit of that corporate backing to push them a bit further up the grid almost like Aston Martin did once they moved on from Racing Point you know they just need that bit of investment and that last bit of money and that last push to make themselves a a winning team and I think I think that team is really going to perform and I'm really excited that 
they didn't just decide to make a new entry because I think it's the perfect match for them and it would have been a shame to just let Alfa Romeo or Sauber sort of be that midfield runner when it has the potential to be that front runner and to bring in another brand and leave that potential extra slot available for maybe someone else to come in, which we'll discuss in a minute. But I'm really here for an Audi entry. You know, I, I think it is almost impossible for Audi to do things badly. Um, they've got a you know, massive reputation. They dominated um, endurance racing in the Mon. They've been in um, Formula E and they've won championships there. Uh, they're currently racing in Dakar with Carlos Sainz's dad. Yeah, I, I just, I think it's going to be a really, really good entry. And I think they did what Porsche couldn't. And what more can you ask for, really? I am also very hyped for the idea of Audi and F1. I think initially, not knowing as much about Audi as you do, I was a little like, oh, I'm so desperate to see an 11th team in F1. Like, we'll definitely talk about that in a minute, the idea of more teams. But then the more you read about it and understand about it, and like you say, it makes so much sense that for them to come into a team with existing facilities and it, it all just seems to be falling nicely into place for them. And yeah, makes perfect sense. But I think what I'm excited most about with Audi is the fact that they will be making their own engines and they are a, they're essentially a works team. So I'm just so excited to have like a sixth engine manufacturer in F1. We've obviously got Mercedes, Ferrari, Alpine or Renault and then Red Bull powertrains slash Ford will be a thing at, by the time 26 rolls around and Honda coming back too. And then Audi, so that's just perfect for me. I think six out of ten teams producing their own engine is so good for F1. So for anyone that doesn't know about it or is maybe new to Formula 1 or isn't necessarily really interested in the engine side of how the cars are put together and work, a works team is uh, how Formula 1 describes a team that produces both the chassis and engine components of the car. The alternative would be a customer team. So you would buy the engine in and you would produce the chassis yourself. So a perfect example of that is Mercedes. They are a works team through and through. They produce the chassis at uh, Brackley and they produce the engine at Bricksworth. They make their own engine. It's designed to fit in their own car. They also sell that engine to other teams. So currently, uh, McLaren and Williams and Aston Martin actually both pay for a engine supply, or all, all three pay for an engine supply from Mercedes. They can also buy other little bits as well, like uh, rear suspension components or gearboxes, but they are customer teams because they pay for the engine, it gets shipped to them, but it wasn't designed by them and it wasn't designed to fit their car. The sort of general thinking in F1 is that it's very difficult to be championship winning constructor without having a works engine because that brings with it its own set of efficiencies and design solutions that you can only really get when you design it all in-house yourself. Mm. You make the engine to fit the car. And me and Beth were talking about this a little bit just before we started the podcast. And we were looking back through the history of the Constructors' Championship to try and see when the last team to win as a, as a, as a customer team happened. So looking back through it, I'm pretty sure having a look back through the last time that a customer team won the championship uh, was Red Bull when it was uh, Red Bull Renault uh, back in 2011. So Renault had its own works team at that point where it made the engine for the car and Red Bull was a customer team that bought the engine off them um, and they won the championship in 2011. Uh, I think it's the case for the, is it the 10 and the 11 championship uh, where Renault was mm. both in the championship um, but the last one would be 2011. Um, after that Renault actually left F1 and Red Bull became their de facto works team where they designed the engine for the Red Bull. So the 11, so the 12 and 13 championships aren't considered to be customer entries, they'd be works entries. So actually the, those, those three championships, the 2011, 2010 and also the 2009 um, entry, which was the Braun GP with the Mercedes engine in the back, was the last time that anyone with a customer engine won a constructors championship. I am fascinated by this and this is part of the appeal of Audi to me. It's funny because this conversation would have been absolutely unthinkable to me a couple of years ago because when I first got into F1 
the thought of like the build of the cars and the engines, I just thought that's something I'm never really going to understand and be into. But I think the more you watch it and get into the even the politics of it and everything, it's it's even if you are someone who's into the drama side of it or whatever, that's absolutely fine. There's loads of things to enjoy about F1. It's not all about engines and car build. But I just find it fascinating the relationships and the dynamics that the customer teams have with the engine manufacturer. So I guess an example is what you were saying about Red Bull and Renault. Obviously, that worked like a dream for them in 2011. But going on from there, we know that they had a bit of a rocky history. There came a point where Red Bull really wanted to be able to build the car and come up with the philosophy for the whole design of the car as a whole and not have to fit someone else's engine into their philosophy. And I just find that fascinating. It, it it must be a really hard relationship to manage if you've not made the engine, if you can't turn around and say, actually, this doesn't work with our chassis. We need it to be more like this. You have to work around someone else's logic, someone else's work. Yeah, and it, it's sort of reduced a little bit now because there's they've standardised the mounting points for the engine and the gearbox now. So it has to sort of fit in the same holes in the chassis. But the, 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 where the efficiency comes is from the packaging of that. If you know early on how the exhaust manifold or the the shrink wrapping or the where the turbo is going to be positioned, when you know all of that early on, your chassis team can build a more aerodynamically efficient car than your customer team can because they don't find out until they're given the engine what those specifications are going to be like. So... It seems to be at the minute that everyone is starting to move, or if they can, try and move to more towards a works deal. Um, last week we got the announcement that Aston Martin is going to receive a new work supplier from Honda, now that they will be split from Red Bull, um, which is absolutely fascinating to me. I never thought I'd find those two companies together in F1. But you are, you know, you're you're right in saying that when you first started watching F1, you know, you weren't really bothered about engine supplies and stuff like that. And actually, when you started watching F1, Beth, engine supply was in a really bad place in Formula 1. You know, before Honda came back, there was only three. There was Ferrari, Mercedes, and Renault. Which, in a way, made it kind of easier for me to understand at that point. I feel like if you're going into F1 now, you're coming into a very spicy situation with all the engines. But, yeah, it, it is. It's one of those things that's just... It adds to the fascination of it from an engineering perspective and also from the drama side of it of like you know these teams trying to work with each other you had the, the spat with Cyril and Christian over the Renault engine not performing and the, the poor reliability of it in the Red Bull and it was I think it was I mean it, it's easy to say this now but what a game-changing choice for Red Bull to obviously go with Honda but then ultimately ultimately I think now the path they're going down you can hold me to this in a few years if it all goes wrong. But I think to be consistent championship contenders and to carry on pushing the mark and staying right up there at the top, having that control and, and having Red Bull powertrains and knowing what's happening each year and the personnel they've inherited from Honda and stuff, I think that's going to work really well for them, which I can't say I'm chuffed about because I'm not the biggest Red Bull fan in the world. But fair play to them. They, they've taken a really interesting path. I think people don't realise so much how much engines can actually genuinely affect a team's performance. So uh, if I go back a little bit to the start of this like turbo hybrid era that we're in at the minute, um, 2014, Mercedes came out the gate with uh, an engine that would just outperformed everything else. I mean, every Mercedes team was just the top of the, the timesheets every session. Um, and it was because they came up with a really innovative little design. It, in, the, in the turbo, it split the turbo and compressor and put it at either sides of the engine block. No one had ever done that before. It had never been thought of, and no one knew how they did it for months, months into the season. And it gave them such a performance advantage because it managed to keep the hot bit hot and the cold bit cold without crossing that over into each other. No one else thought of it. It's taken years for all the other teams to catch up. And that's because Mercedes had that advantage baked in from the start. Whereas Red Bull, they thought that that Renault hadn't really focused enough on the energy recovery system when they'd been developing the engine. They hadn't really thought it was going to be that important a component. So when it came to track, it didn't work. 
But there's also been stories of incredibly bad works engine deals. I mean, I think everyone forgets now that Honda is redeeming themselves by winning championships, even if it's only a name deal with Red Bull right now. When they first came back with McLaren in uh, 15 or 16, that car, I mean, the first race of the season was uh, Australia, that both of the engines detonated themselves on the way to the grid on the formation lap. They, they didn't even start the race, and that continued for the majority of the season. And to, to get it to a point where it worked, they had to dial back the performance significantly. I think at one point when people were talking that they were like 150 horsepower down on everyone else. So they were dialing back all this mm. performance just to make the thing last a race distance. Then they could build the performance back in. But advantages like that, where you learn from, from all the mistakes you've made, now result in an engine that's better than anything else. Things are always chopping and changing in F1, aren't they? But ultimately, it is good to have that control, which bringing it back to the Audi entry is is just ideal for them because they'll have that from the outset. And yeah, okay, works teams don't always top the tables necessarily, but they have the ability to change the entirety of their car and work on the entirety of their car as a whole and make changes going forward. So yeah, big bonus for Audi. I'm very excited to see that. Also going back to the point of Audi being a new addition to F1, but they're not the they're not an 11th team on the grid. And I think that there is a lot of people desperate, to, including myself, desperate to see that as well. Do you think that that's going to happen in the near future? Can you see that coming off? And who do you think it'll be? Interestingly, I am really happy that Audi has taken a spot that's already on the grid so that it leaves that extra slot open for another team. Because I think that uh, to leave that extra spot open, we get the best of both worlds if another team joins. If a team doesn't manage to get through, we've still got Audi coming in. But if we, another team does come in, we get two new teams, which is essentially fantastic. And if both of them should be at a level where they're performing. I think that, that there is a good chance that new teams will join F1. Earlier in the year, I think early February, uh, Formula One announced that it was going to open their tender process, which they call an expression of interest, um, which is to allow new teams to submit a proposal to join the grid. So as you would imagine, it's not an easy process to become a Formula One team. You can't just rock up at the gates and say, hi, I'm here, let me race. You've got to go through a huge process. And even then, that process only begins when F1 says, we're looking for new teams. If, if Formula One says, we're happy with what we've got right now, you aren't getting a spot on the grid unless you buy a slot from an existing team. If a team collapses, you're more than welcome to try and buy their race spot off them, but you're not getting a new spot on the grid unless Formula One says so. And at the moment, Formula One's saying, yeah, we'll, we'll like to think about it. You know, we're not going to guarantee it. You've got to pass the checks first. But these new teams could start... The, it, you know, the F1 said they could start in 2025. I don't really see that happening because if the rule changes will come into play in 26, why would you design a car that can only be used for one year before you've got to totally start from scratch again? That You'd rather just put all that resource into a better 26 car. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm really genuinely hopeful that Formula 1 isn't just casting an empty net out in the hope that they'll drag something in and they don't catch anything. I genuinely think that F1 is in such a good place that manufacturers and teams should be thinking about, you know, can I get into Formula 1? Yeah, I am so for an 11th, 12th team on the grid. I would be very happy to see more cars on the grid for a number of reasons. I think, one, for the sport side of it, the more competition, the better. Two, for the extra seats that it makes available. There's so many drivers out there. We've had this discussion, can probably do a whole podcast on drivers in junior categories and in other categories of motorsport that are deserving of a chance in F1, but there's simply 20 seats to go for and a lot of competition for them. So yeah, extra seats is good for that. Yeah, but totally agree. I'd, I'd love to see more seats on the grid. We, we do genuinely need space for more drivers in F1. Yes, but I think it's just a weird one with the atmosphere in F1 at the minute. I'm I'm not 100% sure it will come off purely due to the kind of butting of heads between the F1 and FIA over this exact issue. Because on one side you have 
Mohammed Ben Soyem, who, if you're not sure, that's the president of the FIA, the governing body for F1 in charge of rules and regulations. And he is strongly in favour of entries like Andretti and has spoken out about it. Sky Sports covered it, covered the drama between the two, because on the other side, you've got Stefano Domenicali, who's the president of F1, which I guess is F1 the business. And he has been outspoken in the opposite way about his uncertainty and his dislike for the way that Andretti have gone about trying to enter F1. And then there's been kind of interspats where Soliam has hit back and said, well, why is there such negativity over the potential of new teams joining? And yeah, there just seems to be a disagreement going on there internally that I think could come in the way of it, which if it does, is a massive shame. I don't really get it all. I I just think... I, I do agree. I think Andretti went about it the wrong way to begin with. And this is uh, Michael Andretti. He runs basically race cars in almost every category of of racing there is. Um, you know, IndyCar, very famous. Uh, Formula E team, Extreme E team. That he does all sorts. But, you know, XF1 driver, ex-IndyCar driver. He knows his stuff. Um, I just think the way he went about it originally was too too blasé and too open he, he just sort of basically tried to bully the teams that, that are existing into agreeing to have him and it doesn't really work like that the teams have to uh, to want you there so the way that the prize money works in f1 is there's a, a big pot and that pot gets split between the teams and the amount of money you get from that pot depends on where you finish in the championship so first place gets the most money last place gets the least amount of money the problem with that is, if you add a new team into that, that's a new team that's taken a slice of that pot. So what the current teams need a new team to prove to them is that by a new team joining, they will increase the size of the whole pot so that when it comes to take their slice from wherever they finished in the championship, the amount of money the teams individually receive is the same rather than less. So you basically need yeah. to prove that you're going to increase the value of Formula 1 to such a level that the other teams won't lose out by you being there. Which is a totally new kind of way for Formula 1 to be. And it wasn't no one really knew that was how it was going to work because it used to be on a system where you would only be awarded prize money down to 10th place. We used to have 12 teams in, in Formula 1. And the last two places just wouldn't get any prize money at the end of the year. And obviously, teams can't run like that, so they changed it. So mm. now, in order to join Formula 1, a prospective new team would have to pay £200 million in what Formula 1 calls its anti-dilution fund. So that in the short term, while you're joining F1, you're not going to increase the pot that massively. So this sort of offsets the loss that the teams will make from the lack of prize money because it's being split between the, the teams until you increase the pot enough that it becomes worth it again. The problem is F1 teams are now worth a lot more than what they were when this agreement was made and Formula 1 is worth a lot more than what it was worth when the teams made this agreement. And so now the teams are saying, well, I understand that the rules say you should pay 200 million, but actually we feel like we want our share of about 600 million because that's actually what we will lose from the pot by a new team coming in. Because really, if there's 10 teams on the grid, you're only going to get 20 million pounds. How much is that to offset a new team coming in? Yeah, I think this is absolutely fascinating. I understand that this specific episode of the podcast might not be for everyone but I find the business end of F1 and how all these kind of behind the scenes things work really interesting. The anti-dilution fund from what I understand is almost a consolation for the existing teams when a joining team comes in like you say to get them through the initial period while that team is building itself and getting to the point of building further interest in F1 and adding value to f1 yeah another it's just one of those other quirks of motorsport that it is a business the teams themselves are individual businesses that are out to win and they're out to win not only because they want to win from a sporting perspective but because it makes the money and allows them to continue to thrive as businesses 
when you get into the argument of is it fair on the current teams to have a new team and things like that I, I'm not I'm not actually sure where I stand on that and where I come down on that it's a weird one because yes the current teams have have built F1 up and helped get it to where it is today but I'm not sure that should mean that the doors are closed and the party's over and the the teams that are in are in and no one else is welcome yeah, I agree. I think the problem is that it shouldn't be a question of is it fair on the teams? It should be a question of will it make the sport better? Because to me, I think a an Andretti entry, which for anyone that doesn't know, is backed by Cadillac, a General Motors company, which is the, either the first or second biggest car manufacturer in the world. Um, that sort of entry to Formula One, I think genuinely would improve Formula One. You know, F1 wants more American viewers, it wants more American-ness to Formula 1. A great way to do that is to have a true-blooded American team, which has already said it would have American drivers. So it sort of fits what Formula 1 wants right now, and I think as long as teams can prove that they're actually going to be good for the sporting side, it shouldn't really matter to me whether they're good for what the teams want. On the face of it, you would expect like F1 and Stefano to be quite interested in the prospect of new teams because essentially it means growth of the grid, growth of the fan base because like you said, you've got an American team which we know that F1 are really after the American market at the minute. But interesting that it's turned out that actually the FIA, are the well, the figurehead of the FIA is the one saying, yeah, let's get on with this and let's make it happen. And the business lead of F1 is the one saying, actually, hang on a moment, let's think about the teams and the impact it'll have. I I don't agree with Stefano's take on it. I, I just can't see in what world having an 11th team would be bad unless it was a completely unprepared entry and it was just chaotic, but they would never allow that anyway. And like you've just said about Andretti, it sounds ideal, even if you're not into the American tracks and things like that, to have a huge American team with all that the fan base that that's going to bring backed by one of the biggest car manufacturers in the world. Why? Why not? Why would you not want that in F1? And the way that the anti-dilution fund sort of works now means that you almost can't be unprepared to enter Formula 1 because if you can't pay that £200 million, you're not going to get a slot on the grid. And if you can't pay that £200 million then you obviously can't afford to be a race team that are spending, you know, that's essentially your budget for one year worth of race, and that's your budget cap. If you can't spend that amount of money in one year, you don't deserve to be on the grid anyway. Do you think there is any element, like stepping away from the financial side of it, do you think there's any element from the teams that they just don't want any extra competition? Because that's something that's been thrown out there as well. Oh, I, I think for sure like they're, they're trying to cover their own backs and make sure that it's a bit easier for them. Like if you look at some of the potential people who have been linked with putting into this new team application process, just some of the big names that jump out is Cadillac Andretti, Honda, Hyundai, and even Hi-Tech, who run you know Formula 2, Formula 3 teams. They're big names. They're, they're big companies that would put a serious effort into it. And, and I think, yeah, there is some element of, you know, if you're a Williams or, a, or an Alpha Tauri right now, do you really want another team coming in and pushing you potentially even further down the grid? Yeah, I'm not brushing off the financial impact of it and saying that it's it should just go ahead and let's just get on with it. Obviously, there does need to be some kind of anti-dilution if the teams are to work as businesses. They've got people to pay. They've got, you know, engineers and people back at the factory and a whole wealth of, of people to look after. But I just, other than getting that bit right and making sure that there is some kind of interim solution in the form of anti-dilution, what is the downside of having an 11th team? I just now, don't understand. I can see the flip side of it because the last time, I say not the last time, actually the last team to join F1 has, has been, I would say, successful because that was Haas. You know, for even from their first, I think they got P6 in their first race with Roman Grosjean. You know, yeah, they've had their sponsor scares and COVID didn't really go very well for them and stuff, but they are a fully functioning race team. They have got a pretty decent car this year. They actually participate in Formula One. 
The problem is, and I could understand why teams and maybe like you know people like Stefano Domenicali are a little bit against new teams, is the ones that aren't prepared and aren't ready for it. Um, back in, I think the last time before Haas, the F1 admitted new teams was for the 2010 season. And they basically put out a tender saying, we want more teams on the grid because it was after, you know, Honda had left and Toyota had left and BMW stopped being part of Sauber and basically all these big names left F1 because of the financial crisis. And F1 said, look, we'll put some financial regs in place. We'll make it easier for you to compete as a small team. And then teams signed up and those regulations never came about. And so we ended up with really three teams who were just destined to be at the back. So we had... I mean, I'm going to go through these, but they all changed their name almost every day because they were getting bought out by companies who wanted to have a crack at F1. You know, we started off with Team Lotus, which became Caterham. They were the best out of those three teams that joined. And even then, they were at the back all the time. They they lasted until halfway through 2014. They managed to come back for one race at the end of 2014, thanks to crowdfunding, and never made it any further than that. Then we had... Do you know, out of these two, I still cannot determine which one is worse. I'll go with Virgin, which then became Marussia, which was Marussia, Virgin, then Marussia, and then Manor, because that changed name every couple of years. That started off being like 80% owned by Richard Branson and Virgin, and they designed the car only using CFD instead of a wind tunnel, so they designed it entirely using a computer, and it didn't work. When it first turned up for its first race, the fuel tank was too small to complete a race distance, and I'm fairly sure it had no energy recovery system. It basically changed its name nearly every year, and then it ran out of funds at the end of 2016, and its factory was bought by Haas, who moved into it and created their team. And I'll happily give this one the worst spot, actually, was HRT. Hispania racing team they were literally around for three seasons they were constantly at the back they changed drivers every week just to try and get a budget that team was the the only good thing they did really was give Danny Ricardo his first seat in F1 which was paid for by Red Bull but I, I think F1 is just terrified of another of another one slipping through the net like this where they pay the entry fee and then suddenly they've got no money and they just run around at the back and can barely finish races and it looks awful for F1 and people are saying, well, why did you let them in in the first place? I think it just terrifies them. I understand that argument and I think it'd be fair enough if this was F1's approach looking at teams that did seem underprepared. But when you have got Andretti with all the points we've just said about the backing through General Motors and how much thought they seem to have put into it and how determined they seem to be to get into the sport, I don't think it's a valid thing because then you've got the most recent entry, if you were to look at just the most recent entry, which is Haas. Like you said, I don't think you can call that a failure. Even now, even the last couple of years, okay, they had a really rough end to the last set of regulations, that era of Mercedes dominance, where they were just literally right at the back. But now they've responded well to the new set of regulations they're you know they are in the fight for points in certain races and stuff so then when you've got a team like andretti with all this preparation and thought that's gone into it i don't think you can use that argument i don't think it's fair for f1 to turn around and say oh we're worried that it's just going to be a big flop i i absolutely agree with you i think the problem is that f1 is such a suspicious and slow beast that because it had its paw trodden on once it finds it very difficult to trust again and you've got to put on you know give it all the treats in the world it's not going to trust you and, and, until it's good and ready to and I think it, it really just needs that push by someone just to say look there's more teams that want to be here and they can run and I'm hoping that this tender process is that for the teams and they can genuinely see, look at the finances, look at the application put forward, that it's not just a whim or a, you know, a, yeah, well, let's go to Formula 1, it'll be great for marketing. They actually want to be there to race and I think out of all of them, that's what Andretti does. Andretti is, is, was born to race and the fact that he's got Cadillac mm-hmm. behind him shows how serious that desire is. So, yeah... I, I can see both sides of it, but I agree with you. It would genuinely just be fantastic to get some more competitive cars on the grid. Absolutely. And like you said earlier, 
the decision is expected to be made on those entries by the end of this month so hopefully there will be a bit of an update on that and maybe we can revisit it at some point but I think looking forward to the next race now 10 teams on the grid unfortunately Andrew not 11 but there's been some interesting practice sessions going on we're getting to see the upgrades that the teams have gone for they all seem to be closing the gap and going more towards the Red Bull design and I think that it could be another quite interesting weekend. Yeah, you know, for, for everyone listening, it's a Friday night for us. We've seen practice one and two. So the new Ferrari's out. And um, I don't like it. I don't like how it looks. I like the bathtub design that they had. I thought it was interesting and unique and a bit different and fun. And it was fast last year. And that's what I wanted. I wanted it to be just different designs and going fast. And you could compete with different uh, ways of racing. And... Yeah, no, doesn't work. Um, same as Mercedes. Let's let's just make a Red Bull clone and do what Aston did and just carry on like that. I just, if, I mean, if it like you know, you said to me earlier, if it goes fast, then you put it on the car. But I just kind of, I just so sad that they all look the same now. I do get what you mean because I really liked the idea of like the zero pod Mercedes racing against this really interesting curvy shape. Ferrari and then the Red Bull which has a different philosophy with its side pods I like the idea of three very different design ideas coming together and being able to battle it out on track and I was sad that it didn't play out like that because I think you were saying to me that they do all seem to converge on one design yeah I think ultimately they are going to make decisions that will make them more competitive or they at least believe will make them more competitive based on the data and the wind tunnels so I can't say I'm surprised that they're moving towards the Red Bull philosophy, but yeah, how funny to see Mercedes and Ferrari converging on a Red Bull design when previously it was teams like Aston Martin trying to copy the Mercedes a bit. You've got to say, though, really, Aston Martin played much more of a blinder than I think anyone ever realised at the time. They realised really early on last season that the concept they'd gone for actually just wouldn't work in real life. And so instead of just saying, look, let's try... What Mercedes did was just said, right, the car's not working right now because it's, we've, we've got to run it too stiff to stop it from bouncing. So let's sort the suspension out and then we'll be able to run it softer and it won't bounce. Apart from the fact that that didn't... That just hid everything else that was wrong with the car. Whereas Aston said, this just doesn't work. It's never going to work. Let's go a different route and just change it now before we get too far down this development line. That's why the Aston is so good, because where Aston Martin was, what what race did it, it was like Baku or something last year, they introduced this one, or Silverstone or something, they introduced the upgrade with the downwash side pods. That's where Mercedes and Ferrari is now, a year and a bit on. Aston Martin has had all of this extra time to understand this concept of car and what makes it fast. And Ferrari and Mercedes are only just putting their hands on the court, never mind on the ball. Yeah, they responded much quicker. They were much quicker off the bat and it's massively paid off for them. But you can see it now that the other teams are starting to come to the same realisation. I think it must be quite hard. I suppose with Aston, you could say that they're changing their philosophy more towards the Red Bull side pods or however you want to put it, wasn't as big a step as Mercedes going from zero pods to fairly substantial side pods. I think that's a complete shift that's going to affect other parts of the car as well. Not that Aston's changes didn't affect other parts of the car, but Mercedes had to go for a a massive overhaul to bring these upgrades that they've gone for. So, yeah, I, I can understand why it took longer, but the amount longer that it took, like an entire season longer for them to come to that realisation, and yeah, it was only laugh a few races ago. This, right? it, it feels like, I'm not a football fan, but football is the only thing I can use to really like equate this to right now. Red Bull are just scoring consistently, right? Aston Martin have figured out that you need to kick the ball to score, and... Uh, Mercedes and Ferrari have only just finished arguing over the fact that the ball isn't square. Right? That's that's <laughs> how it that. feels like. You know, they, they've only just realised that the ball is round. They're not quite at the point yet where they've realised that you've got to kick it. What an analogy. No, I actually love that. 
puts it quite well. All right, I don't know what the teams at the back of the grid are doing. They they think it's hockey or something. I don't know. <laughs> they're not trying to kick it. They're handballing it constantly and wondering what's going wrong. I mean, some of them are just rolling around with their nose. They're just rolling around on the lawn. Oh, dearie me. But yeah, it, I'm not sure what I think, how I think it's going to play out for Ferrari this weekend uh, in the initial practice session from today, Friday, as a reminder, if you're listening to this on like Monday. But it looked, Ferrari looked quite fast. But obviously you can't really tell anything, for, especially from FP1. You can't tell anything from practice sessions in general sometimes, but especially the very first one. But Alonso continues to look fast. Verstappen continues to look like he'll probably be very, very difficult to beat. But I would love, love, love to see Alonso get his 33rd win at home. Please make it happen. Do you have that um, that stat you sent me earlier about all the, the, the Alonso oh, 33 yeah. race stuff? Do you know what? Yes, let me get that up now. Yeah, so what it was, was there's been, I find this crazy as well, there's been, as of the Spanish Grand Prix, there will have been 1,086 F1 races and it will be Alonso's 362nd start, which means that's exactly one-third, 33.3% of all races. It's the 33rd race at this circuit. He has garage and pit box number 33. He's going for his 33rd win, 10 years since his last one, and he's on home soil. And people are saying, have the stars aligned for this. This tweet is from at Laura C. Winter, by the way. I'm not stealing with her storm there but i just found it absolutely fascinating how that's all come together i love things like that i know loads of people say and i agree it is just coincidence but can you imagine can you imagine if he wins it but sometimes all you need is a little bit of coincidence and a little bit of luck and you you end up with a really good result yeah and i think it's stories like that that make f1 make any sport it's those kind of intriguing stories where you've got someone who is so talented as Alonso is and it's been 10 years since his last win and you're just rooting for him he's on home soil you just feel like he's not it's not going to take much for him to get a win obviously you can say if he was in a slightly faster car but I don't even think it requires that at this point the rate that Aston are going and the development path they're on you've got to think there's a win round the corner for Alonso and you would hope you would love to see it on his home soil. The Spanish fans love him. I saw like a clip from Thursday, I think. There wasn't even any action on the track and they were all stood in the pit lane singing his name. And, oh, yeah, I'd love it. I, I think my dream for this weekend is a Alonso and Science 1-2, where the two of them fight each other for like the entire race for the privilege of Please. being P1. I feel like we're being too... I feel like that's not going to happen, Andrew. Sorry to cut you down, but it's not going to happen. But we can believe. If we believe it hard enough, maybe. Maybe it will. I need to go and put, like, £100 on a, um, Alonso. <laughs> so, maybe not £100, maybe, like, £1 on a, uh, Alonso. <laughs> you probably make £100 if it does happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. I would like to see science do well. I think he's another one, like we were saying about Ocon before, sometimes flies under the radar. I do feel like science isn't getting the credit he deserves at the moment, especially with all the speculation that there's been about Ferrari and the future lineup at Ferrari. People seem to keep assuming that science is on the way out and someone will replace him. But at the moment, he's ahead of Leclerc in the standings. Yeah, I don't think Leclerc's covered himself in glory the, the start of this season. There's been mistakes from him and then you've got people prophesizing the downfall of signs. It just doesn't feel very fair. I mean, you'd have to say, actually, what, this is Sainz's, is it his third season at Ferrari? So he did, no, what year did he start at Ferrari? It's at least three seasons, yeah. Was it 2021? 20, yeah, because Seb's last year was 2020. So it was 21, 22 and 23. He beat Leclerc in his first season. He didn't beat him last year, but I don't think he was a million miles off. And now he's ahead of him again. I genuinely think people sleep on Carlos Sainz and don't rate him yeah. as much as they should. I he had have, to... and I've said this before, I've rated him since he was in the Toro Rosso. He was one of the only people I think that's actually ever consistently stood up pace-wise to Verstappen. You have always sung Carlos Sainz's praises and I think it's, I think I started noticing him, some of his performances at McLaren and I've always liked him since I started watching F1. But, especially when he went to Ferrari. I was so impressed with his first season with them. He seemed to get in the car and just 
know what he was doing straight away. And then, yeah, okay, he didn't have a great 22 compared to Leclerc. Leclerc was contending for the championship from the get-go. And Sainz had a few bad races and also a lot of bad luck because he had a lot of reliability issues. When he was on for good results, he had like engine blow-ups and all sorts of stuff go on. So, so yeah, I don't think uh, it's fair to dismiss him in the way that people do. I've just quickly had a look and um, he, he was about 50 points behind Leclerc last year. Considering Leclerc jumped in that car last year and thought it was perfect and Carlos really didn't get on with it at the start of the season, which is why he had a couple of early season crashes while he got to understand the car. And he also had like the fire in uh, Austria and a couple of other reliability things as well. 50 points is not a massive deficit over the season considering the season that he had. So I, I genuinely think people do sleep on Carlos Sainz too much. Yeah, we agree on that. We're agreed on that. But to wrap up our race preview, I think things to watch out for, or that we'll definitely be watching out for this weekend, are how are Stroll and Perez going to get on? Are they going to pull it back and get a really strong result? How are Sainz and Leclerc going to perform in the Ferrari? How are the updates going to play out from Mercedes and Ferrari? Are they going to close the gap at all? And will Alonso get a home win? Yeah, I, I hope so. I'd, I'd really like to see an Alonso win. I think it's about time and maybe we can make Beth's numbers dream come true with a 33rd race win and a home Grand Prix after doing one third of every race that's ever been in Formula One. Yeah, fingers crossed. But once again, here we are having let you listen yourselves into a stupor at our ramblings and ravings on everything in F1. Make sure to let us know what you think about today's topics. Do you think F1 needs more teams or is less a bit more for you? Um, either way, make sure to let us know. You can get in touch with us by tweeting at us, which is at track chat tweets, or you can follow us on Instagram at track underscore chat. Just thank you again for listening and we'll see you next time to take a look ahead at the Canadian Grand Prix.